0: Sir Balpert, the team of brass, and I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Studio. my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Studio, making his weekly Monday appearance on the program. It's his weekly Monday appearance. The managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Of particular note, this week, Kendris Morales has signed a deal for three years and $33 million with the Toronto Blue Jays. He has a competent bat, perhaps an above-average bat, and it is remarkably slow of foot to the point where it could nearly negate whatever he provides with that bat. I asked Dave Cameron about Morales and about other players in general regarding the speed tool and to what degree the slowest footed runners can actually damage their team's chances of scoring runs. Over the past week or so, 10 qualifying offers were extended to potential free agents. Two of those were accepted. What sort of calculus, I asked Dave Cameron. What sort of calculus does a team perform when deciding whether or not to extend a qualifying offer? And how does a player make his decision after receiving a qualifying offer? Definitely say the word offer more than once in this program. Finally, always one to mill the existential grist. Dave Cameron asked some pretty big questions about both the host and the guest on FanGraphs
1: Audio. Where are we willing to be below average and how far below average are we willing to be
0: Because it was very quick. One more time, one more time, Dave Cameron's deepest, darkest questions.
1: Where are we willing to be below average and how far below average are we willing to be?
0: That amusing diversion and other amusing diversions just like it in what's to follow. What's following most immediately, however, is a message from the sponsor. The sponsor is SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com. Have you ever been frustrated in your life? Can you think of one time in which you were frustrated or in which you had to experience some combination of work or hassle? Likely, it's very likely. However, if you've ever used SeatGeek, you've probably found one experience that is free of both those qualities. What SeatGeek does is to pull tickets available at all the other sites, all the other ticket sites, probably on the whole internet, and to aggregate them into one place so that you, the customer, never miss a deal. What else they do is to assess a grade based on value to every seat so you can immediately find the underpriced ones. So you can, like an early 21st century baseball general manager, exploit inefficiencies in the damn ticket-buying market? And finally, what is SeatGeek known for, if not its honesty? It's a rhetorical question, without an answer. But here's a point that, unlike StubHub, which might assess fees or mysterious fees at some point along the way, what SeatGeek does is not do that. They never assess fees at any point from the beginning to the end of a transaction. And for having endured all of these words about SeatGeek, what you can do, is to get $20 for free from them. It's a rebate. It's called a rebate. And here's how you claim it. What you do is you download the free SeatGeek Gap. You go to the settings tab, settings tab, settings tab, and click add a promo code. And it's the promo code Fangraphs, F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S, SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free Seeky Gap. and enter the promo code Fangraphs today for your nearest possible convenience. With which utterance, we have concluded the sponsor's message and nearly the whole introduction what is it it is fangraff Sodi. who does it feature managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron when does it begin right now yeah I mean that would
1: be expected. Um,
0: let me we're dealing with some logistics right here now, Dave Cameron. Let me ask you a logistical question with regard to uh the pastime the base the pastime the American pastime by which I mean napping no, I mean baseball
1: okay uh, after the last week, I would not have guessed that napping was your idea of the the american pastime. <sighs> Let's, well, let's just skip right over that segue. Yeah,
0: that's, not a, that's, a, that's a segue to hell. <laughs> right. We're going to bypass that <laughs> The uh Here we go. I want to say this, Dave Cameron, is that <clears> – <throat> so I, I used to before, – uh, before I wrote full-time for Fangraphs, I used to uh, write occasionally about basketball. Right. Yes. And and a difficult thing when attempting to discuss basketball, and I suppose it's also relevant to hockey and to football, is when you are attempting to just on a very basic level to denote the year in which the season is being played. Right. Technically, yeah. we are in the middle of what the 2016-17 basketball season. Right. Yeah. The hyphenated two
1: two-year seasons. It's a little messy, though, but isn't it's, it? It's awful.
0: And I think that like I don't I, basketball reference. Honestly, I still don't re- I don't remember how they deal with it. But I think that they maybe it's the it's like the second season is how they characterize it. Right. Like if you're looking at like a player's stat line, yeah, it's the year so, that ends, right? Right. Well, no, actually, they've changed it now. So so we're actually it says or per- perhaps it was always like this. But, but I'm looking at the a player for the Cavs, Kyrie Irving, the 2016 2017 season. I think I've seen it. Uh, um. Uh, Denoted differently than that It doesn't really matter The point is this Is um, As it pertains to baseball You wrote a post the other day Discussing the 2016 Or discussing the free agents Of this off season Right And you were like Oh the post is in the queue And you know You'd like to publish it early All that makes sense You had titled it um, You had titled it 2016 free agents
1: Top 50 free agents yeah. Top 50 free agents Right you changed. And
0: I it. said, unilaterally
1: I did without consulting me.
0: Well, I attempted to. I attempted to consult you, sort of.
1: Well, we're uh, in different time zones now, so consulting is a little harder in the morning.
0: <laughs> it is, yes. Yeah. So, but then, well, here is my concern: is I look back, and you had written a uh, post along similar lines yeah. last year, and you would call that the 2016, right? Whatever, which is agents.
1: a good reason to unilaterally change the headline this year.
0: So I was wondering about that, and also like, how do you if you just want to talk to another human about this about the game, and you're attempting to call attention to a particular off season? What do you What do you say?
1: Yeah, I mean it's tricky because like the basketball season it overlaps, right? So the off season is November, December, January, February, and the beginning of March, really. Um, so, you have three months in next year and two months in this year. Uh, most of the action actually occurs in November and December. Uh, so, the bulk of the players will sign in 2016, but they're going to sign contracts that begin in 2017. Um, so, I think, like, you could make a reasonable argument for calling it either one. Uh, I think because the players are going to sign in 2016, I... Naturally, I think, at least right now, I don't know what I would have decided 12 months ago, Um, (laughs) naturally think of this as the 2016 off-season, because we just had the 2016 regular season, and now, in the same year, we're about to have the off-season. Nothing has changed. Um, So I would think of this as the 2016 off-season, where you sign players for 2017, but because I named things differently last year, I, I recognize the logic in why you changed the headline. Yeah. Well, and then anyway, of course you, I had to go with similar headlines for like my today's bargain post.
0: Yeah, but I don't. I, I don't think anyone has mentioned. I no one. I don't think has mentioned in the comments of either post. And I don't know if they would have mentioned it if you call it 2016 either.
1: Yeah, I mean we're definitely beginning this podcast with a topic that no one cares about.
0: Well, no, but I guess it's just it's just a very basic. Uh, it's a very basic logistical question about how we talk about how we discuss the game like literally how you begin a conversation about talking about the sport. Yeah, I um, wonder
1: how many people uh, clicked on this podcast hoping to hear us discuss what we should call this free agent class.
0: Well, anyway, let's talk about one of the free agents who's already signed, Kendris Morales.
1: Yeah, he signed what uh it was Friday? Friday. For, yeah, I guess for what? 3:33 is that right? T- correct, yeah.
0: Okay, so as you point out, uh, Kendris Morales certainly has one one strength, which is uh, his ability to hit. Right, eh, kind of. He's probably going to be an above-average hitter. Maybe. Okay.
1: Well, then that, Slight, that bodes, slightly above-average hitter while he's thirty-four.
0: That bodes all right. So that bodes poorly for the rest of his value because <laughs> he, that's yeah. the thing he does the best.
1: That's the only thing he does.
0: Right. <clears throat> I guess what. It, but one thing you pointed out with regard to Kendris Morales is he appears to be. A case where foot speed foot speed is a real issue.
1: Yeah, like a you legitimate issue. Can't run issue. at all. Yeah,
0: no. Right. Like
1: there's like you know everyone always makes fun of Mike Bartolo Colon for being not an athletic shape, but Bartolo Colon is like still an athletic guy. Uh, you could outrun Kendris Morales. Kendrys Morales is really really slow.
0: Okay. <laughs> so the, so here's a question, I guess now you 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 see scouting reports, and occasionally you will see a great deal of enthusiasm about a player's foot speed mm-hmm. um, Now perhaps it's, it hasn't been the case as much over say the last two three, five years, but sometimes you do see w- what you might consider an unreasonable amount of enthusiasm given the degree to which uh, given the the in some cases the limited degree to which foot speed can actually create value. Um, then again, you know, Billy Hamilton, like, that's everything for him, and he's actually, what, isn't he putting up average seasons anyway, despite the fact that he basically can't, can't hit? hit at all? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, Billy Hamilton is a testament to what speed can do for you. Uh, and when you add in, like, the fact that he's a good defender because he's fast, uh, he's basically, like, a three win player, even though he can't hit because he's the fastest guy in baseball.
0: Right. So, So, with regard to slow players, though, it almost seems like if you're watching a game, um, and because of the market in which I live, I will occasionally, you know, watch a Red Sox game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, it's almost with it, there's like a sort of um, it is really just a b- bemusement usually with regard to slow players, right? I mean, David Ortiz is not fast. Right. Everyone knows he's not fast. And he, in addition to being fast, he's also just like I think he's had some leg injuries, right? right. He's a 40 year old person, right? So he's not going to move very well. Um, but I'm interested what is the, like, what is, what is the, how bad can v- v- seriously below average foot speed make a player?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think with the worst base running season we've seen uh, for the years in which we have kind of like total, not just stolen basins and caught stealing, but like, you know, first to third advancement or second to home advancement or first to second advancement sometimes for these super slow guys. Um, I think the worst we've ever seen is something like negative 10 or negative 11 runs, which I think was maybe a Prince fielder season or an Adam Dunn season. It's, I think, one of those two. Adam Dunn feels more correct. Um, It might actually, it could also be Victor Martinez, who's crazy slow. Um, But the guys like that who are basically designated hitters who cannot run, and they just, like, have no mobility, um, they uh, can cost their teams almost a win uh, off of their overall value based on the fact that they are so hard to score. And so I, th- I think when fans look at these guys, like, and I think someone even said this in response on Twitter or something, like, we don't pay these guys for their speed. We don't care if they're fast or not. Which I agree that that's the position teams are taking, but they should care because we don't actually care about batting average or on-base percentage or slugging percentage. What we really care about is runs because runs are what determine whether you win or lose at the end of the game. So in any given game, you're trying to figure out how you outscore the opponent. If Kendris Morales, you know, lines a ball into the gap, that's good. And you're like, oh man, that's what we paid Kendris Morales for. But... If he can't score, even if your team gets two more hits, like if he has to go first to second, second to third, and he stands there in the inning ends, his hit was worthless. He did, it did not help you score runs. So, When you look at, like, Morales or Adam Dunn or Prince Fielder or any of these guys, Victor Martinez, who are just atrocious base runners, they are less valuable offensive players than their overall batting lines make them look because they don't score runs. They only score, you know, 20% of the time uh, when they get on base, even though generally good hitters are coming up behind them when, like, Billy Hamilton scores, like— 35 percent of the time he gets on base so um the the ability to translate your reaching base into runs makes a real difference on the scoreboard
0: now for for a lot of players uh it seems as though if you you know if you could know if you knew everything about them with the exception of their foot speed then you could still make you could still make a uh, a pretty logical guess about how much they'd be worth right and so yeah. so so maybe if 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 a commenter is saying that with regard to Kendris Morales you know in the case of 90 to 95% of the hitting population it's not an issue right, right. but then but that doesn't mean that 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 doesn't mean that even those other players foot speed isn't isn't moving the dial in one direction or another it, the problem is when you get to a case like Kendrick Morales you're at the extremes <clears throat> and he's actually doing in a fair amount of the value that he's uh, producing with the bat and i'm curious what is this thing that humans have that the, the difficulty we have perhaps it's some sort of cognitive bias where we just are not able to fit all of the information in our head
1: you know what i mean yeah i mean i, I think when we look at like you know foot speed i actually kind of think of it like um like babbit for a pitcher right like it's not that like there's no ability for a pitcher to control The, you know, speed at which a ball comes off the bat when they throw it. Like if you throw it down the middle, the exit velocity and the babbit are going to be higher than if you paint on the corner. But the spread and difference between major league pitchers is generally small, which is why something like FIP works is because 90 to 95% of the pitchers are basically the same when it comes to hitting locations that uh, allow their exit velocity and their up to be, you know, within a, a pretty small spread. But then you have, you know, the guys on the extremes, right? You have the Clayton Kershaws on one extreme or the Brad Zigglers or, you know, the guy at Mariano Rivera. And then on the other end of the extreme, you have the Javier Vasquez's or the uh, – um, you know the guys who consistently underperform, the Rick Purcellos, and those guys are kind of outliers. But their 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 lack of skill or skill in Kershaw or Rivera's case uh, allows them to be you know, differently valuable than FIP suggests. And people have no real problem pointing that out, right? Like they're like, no, there's, there's more here than just, uh, you know, walk strikeouts and home runs. Uh, and this small portion of the players, five, 10%, whatever it is, they can really adjust their value based on this minor skill. Base running is basically the same thing, right? Like 90 to 95% of the players are average-ish or something close to average. And then 5 to 10% of the population can add like a win of value to their base running or take a win of value away from their base running. Um, I, the way I think about it is base running is basically the BABIP of hitters.
0: Okay. and Now, the, the Blue Jays have signed Morales to a three-year deal. Um, what is their – how will they use him? Is he going to be a full-time
1: DH for them? Yeah, you're, you're not signing him to play the field.
0: Right, right. But is, it, is he going to be a full-time DH? Yeah,
1: yes, yes.
0: Well, it's a bit interesting to me, right? Because it was, what, a three-year, $33 million deal, so roughly $11 million a year. Uh, if you assume, and I think probably teams are assuming, that a win is worth somewhere in the eight to $9 million range, is that fair? Yeah, somewhere in there. Okay. Uh, they're essentially, they're almost acknowledging, by the amount that they've agreed to pay him, that they do not expect Kendris Morales to be really even an average player.
1: Correct. Yeah. Average players get a lot more than $30 million these days.
0: And yet, everything it it appears as though they will be using him in a full-time capacity, which would seem to suggest they're aware that they will be employing a below-average player. (coughs) And yet, I assume that they they would want to contend for the postseason next year.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to have above average players at every single position. <laughs> That's just not something that most teams can do. At some point, you just kind of have to say, um, especially if you've already got some high-priced players like Troy Tolitsky and Russell Martin, um, you, you have to look at your payroll and be like, can we afford to fill every hole we have unless we have a whole bunch of good, young, cheap players who came up kind of like the Cubs did? And then you can have talent all around the field. But that's how you build a super team, and that's not so easy. So uh, most teams and most general managers have to make choices and say, you know, where are we willing to be below average, and how far below average are we willing to be, and how much are we willing to spend um, to kind of get close to average at, the, at our weak spots. And I think in this case, the Blue Jays looked at it and said, we could have an above average player if we re-sign Edwin Encarnacion, but that's going to cost us, I don't know, $85, $90 million, maybe $100 million, who knows. Um, and... The fifty-ish million dollars they saved by signing Morales, who's a below-average player, will probably go to an outfielder or a relief pitcher or both. So maybe they look at it and say, "Look, we're going to go sign Josh Reddick or Steve Pierce or Josh Reddick and Steve Pierce or Brett Cecil and Steve Pierce or whatever some combination of players that they like." And they look at it and say, "We would rather have all of three of these players than Edwin Tornasio.
0: Yeah. So do you, so. They're going to get an out. would they need a, what? What do they? What do they need? What else do they need? If? Well, they,
1: their outfield is weak, uh, and now their bullpen, especially if they lose Brett Cecil, is, was already a little bit questionable and will be weak again. Um, they really just need depth in, in general. Like, um, you can look at their frontline players and be like, if all these guys get, uh, play 150 games, uh, and they play up to potential, this could be a good team. But like, if any of these guys get hurt, uh, Troy Tolitsky goes down, or if Russell Martin goes down, or if Kevin Plar goes down, or if, you know, if Marcus Stroman or Aaron Sanchez goes down, there's just nothing, nothing really there that you'd be like, yeah, this guy's gonna step in. And we're going to be excited about it. So they need, uh, at least from uh, kind of a baseline perspective, they need some uh, you know above replacement level players. And I think that's what they're going to do is go get guys like Morales and Reddick. Uh, Reddick might be an average player, but like guys like that who are not stars but serviceable major league players who won't kill you,
0: right? And then hopefully uh, the players along the front lines will remain healthy, and that will that will equal. A- that will be equal an above, a slightly above yeah. average team.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, that. I think that's what they're hoping for. Is they the guys that they already have that are kind of like the core of the team will be the premium players, and they're going to fill around with with role players this winter.
0: Okay, all right. Uh, <clears throat> the Blue Jays offered qualifying offers or made qualifying offers to two departing free agents.
1: Yeah, well, uh, we're not one hundred percent sure they're departing, but most most likely the Morales signing suggests that Encarnacion and Batista will go elsewhere.
0: Right, and I don't know. Did any other team lose two players, or, or did they have to? Were they compelled to extend qualifying offers to two players?
1: The Mets with Joanna uh, Cespedes and Neil Walker, oh, and yeah, okay. the Dodgers with Kenley Jansen and Justin Turner.
0: Okay. Well, you Same. named the other two. It was a quiz yeah. question. Yeah. So very you're welcome. Good. Well done. Uh, <clears throat> here's a qu- uh, Ryan Pollock wrote about this maybe at the beginning of last week. Yep. Uh, wrote about this for Fangraphs. The calculus. Uh, performed not only by the teams but also by the players, which the, the teams also have to consider, um, what the players' calculus is, for accepting, both for extending and accepting or, or rejecting the qualifying offer. Would you would you discuss that a little bit? I mean, to a you know, degree you need to rely on Pollock's piece, that's fine, but also just, I guess, in general, the sort of the math that goes on behind the scenes to determine that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if you're looking at it from a player's perspective, it's a fairly easy decision in terms of what do I expect to get as a free agent uh, with a qualifying offer attached. So if I reject the qualifying offer, I've got compensation attached to me, you know, factoring in that tax, how much do I think I'm going to get paid on a multi-year deal? And then if I take it, say I'm going to get $17 million for next year, do I – Believe that the risk of an injury or a down season is worth it to me to re-enter the market next year uh, after having made seventeen million for the first year, and then try and get another multi-year contract after that. So, say you're, um, you know, a marginal player. I think Luis Albuena was brought up in Ryan's piece, and you think you're going to get two years and twenty million, or two years and twenty-two million, or something this winter. It's easy to take the qualifying offer because you get 17 million up front. Now you only have to make five million dollars next year in order to break even. Um, and if you, you know, you at, at this point in Major League Baseball, five million dollars is like you have polio and you lose a wag. <laughs> like you, you don't have to do much to be worth five million dollars in the free agent market anymore. So the risk is very minimal. Really, the sweet spot is kind of like that 30 to 40 million dollar range. Is these guys like say the Kendris Morales is the world? He got 33 million without the compensation pick being attached. He would not have gotten $33 million with the compensation pick attached. He probably gets... Ten million, fifteen million. The teams would have really taken that tax into effect. So, if he would have been offered the qualifying offer, he almost certainly would have taken it. He would have taken a seventeen million dollars and been like, "Yep, I'm good. I'll play one year at $17 million." Um, so, those are really the guys who get pounded uh, by the draft pick tax the most heavily. If you're over fifty million in the expected contract, um, it's pretty easy to say, "I'm going to turn this down." Uh, occasionally, you'll see like an Ian Desmond whose market crashes and he ends up settling for eight million dollars, but he's going to get a decent paycheck this winter he's not going to be that much worse off than he would have been if he had taken say four and 60 last winter um so even that downside scenario is not that bad for the player
0: were there any players who uh, i mean who were the players on that bubble this year you mentioned valbuena was maybe one of them yeah and uh, who who else was there and did any of them receive the qualifying offer
1: No, so teams basically didn't make any marginal players qualifying offers this year. I think the one guy you could have made the argument for um, being an interesting guy is Michael Saunders with Toronto. So Saunders had a terrific first half, is a talented player, um, has had signs of being an all-star. I think he actually made the all-star team this year. Um, But he's also wildly inconsistent and injury-prone and has some real flaws. He strikes out all the time. So he's the kind of guy that you could look at and say, you know what, he's probably worth – 12 or 13 million dollars, 14 million dollars on a one year deal. If I make him a 17 million dollar qualifying offer and he takes it, whatever, I'm overpaying him by two or three million dollars a year. That's not a big deal. If I make him a qualifying offer and he turns it down and I get a draft pick that's worth say ten million dollars so is roughly what a draft pick uh, compensation draft pick is worth to a team these days. Uh, that's way better. I would happily take the ten million dollar uh, draft pick and let him leave, and then I'm in a pretty good situation so you're you don't actually need saunders to take the to turn down the qualifying offer that often in order for it to be a good strategy. But I think the Blue Jays looked at it and said, you know, what is the market going to pay Michael Saunders with the compensation attached? And then you're probably looking at it and saying, teams aren't going to commit long term to a guy with this inconsistency, with this injury history. So if he's looking at a one-year deal and teams are looking at a $10 million tax on top of their signing, he's going to get crushed. And right. uh, he probably would be advised by his agent to take it, you know, 90, 95% of the time. Uh, so therefore, making the making the qualifying offer to try and get the pick isn't worth it.
0: Okay, uh, you mentioned uh, today you you looked at some of the players you expect to be free agent bargains. Of course, yep. uh, uh, I suppose implied in this is that they will receive a certain type of contract, um, maybe based off of either your estimate or the, the estimates of the uh, of the crowds. And then, uh, but you think that they'll be worth more than that? I assume that that's that's the basic calculus that you're performing.
1: Correct. It's uh, value I expect the team to get versus price I expect the player to sign for.
0: Right. And number one is Justin oh. Turner. Yeah. Number one is Justin Turner.
1: Hooray, gingers.
0: Yeah, but just so Turner is interesting, right? And I'll be honest, I even, even looking as a sort of person who has definitely looked 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 multiple times at his Fangraphs page, the notion of Justin Turner you know star player is, is still one uh, to which i'm becoming accustomed
1: right it's not a thing that i think people are still willing to accept even after three years of him playing at that level
0: Right, well, I guess it happened uh, some, somewhat late, didn't it? I mean, he was, a, yeah. he, I feel like he was like a second, like a, an occasional second baseman for the Mets a few he, years
1: ago. He was a utility player with the Mets who had no power and basically it wasn't a great defender. He was basically around as a contact, uh, you know, 85 to 90 WRC plus guy. You know, bench bench bat platoon guy who would play against lefties, but was not worth a starting job. And then he went to Los Angeles, figured out how to hit for power, and became a four win player.
0: That's right. Is there any? Uh, do you think there's any merit to to making a comparison between uh, Turner and and Josh Donaldson? The way that uh, both, I guess, because of the age at which they've broken out and the method by which they've done it.
1: Yeah, I mean, so Turner would be a very poor man's Josh Donaldson. I think like both kind of had similar. um Backgrounds In terms of, you know, they weren't great players. They were uh, kind of seen as uh, fringy guys. And then they had their breakout. Donaldson's breakout was, you know, I may be the best player in baseball, not named Mike Trout, where Turner has never reached that level. Um, he's been a good player, but not an elite MVP candidate the last few years. But you could look at it and say, you know, what did you think about Josh Donaldson after his first year? What did you think about Josh Donaldson after his second year? And how quickly did you become accustomed to the fact that Josh Donaldson was a star? I think the magnitude of Donaldson's performance made it easier to buy into, right? When you have seven or eight win seasons, it's like, oh, that's really hard to fake. mm mm-hmm. Turner has had more like four web seasons, which I think are probably a little bit easier for people to overlook. Um, and the, so I think, to me, the comparison is more like Daniel Murphy, right? So, like, Murphy last year as a free agent, there was a lot of skepticism. No one really wanted him. He was kind <laughs> of sat out there for a little while. Ended up being, I think, the Nationals' third choice to fill second base. Um, But, you know, people looked at it and said, we don't buy the power breakout of the second half. It just hasn't gone on long enough. The track record's not long enough. Um, You know, the contact skills are fine. The defense is whatever it is. It's not that great, but it's not going to kill you. Um, But we just don't think you're going to hit for enough power to to be as good as you were in the second half of 2015. And then obviously Murphy was fantastic this year and finished in the top five in MVP or will finish in the top five in MVP voting. Um, I think Turner is a similar kind of thing where it's the contact skills are there, the defense is fine. Maybe it's probably better than Murphy's, but not amazing. You don't look at Justin Turner as a gold glove player. But if the power is real, he's a, he's a star player. And I think people look at a guy like Turner who didn't hit for power for a very long time and are still a little bit skeptical over the idea that he's now a slugger.
0: You mentioned, you mentioned it's hard to fake, uh, what, a seven or eight-win season? Yeah. Um, maybe a little bit easier one, four or five-win season. Can you remember some of the fakest really good seasons you've seen uh, in recent memory? I happen well, to be think, clicking here on 2009 to 2016. What do you? Yeah, have?
1: I mean, so like the Brady Anderson one is like the the main one from my childhood. <laughs> like right, like right, right. Brady Anderson goes from like 20 homers to 50 home runs in the middle of the steroid era, and everyone's like, ah, I don't think that's real. And then it wasn't. He didn't hit 50 home runs ever again. Um, so that was kind of always kind of like the the fluke season that everyone pointed to. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think of like more recently a guy that had like uh, just a crazy great single season at a really high level.
0: What do you think Uh, about Jacoby Ellsbury 2011?
1: Yeah, but he was always a star, right? Like, I mean, he was a high first round draft pick, a top prospect. Um, He'd had some injury problems, but, you know, even before that, he was a good player. Like, that wasn't a guy who came out of nowhere to become a monster. That was a, you know, a three win player having a nine win season.
0: Right. Um, And and just looking at, like, the first 30 of them, there does not appear to be many cases against him. Maybe Carlos Gomez at seven and a half wins.
1: Yeah. But uh and a lot of that would be driven by um, you know, really high defensive valuations, which I think people are a little more skeptical of. But that's not really the case with like Donaldson or Turner or these guys who Murphy who are who are doing it with a bat. Like that's um when you have like a really monster seven or eight win season that's driven by offense, that's um it's it's not so easy to fluke that.
0: Right. Uh two thousand nine Sean Figgins.
1: Okay, yep. That, would, be, that <laughs> would not be a guy I remembered as a six win player.
0: Six and a half win season but that was he was credited with well I don't have I don't know how many fielding runs, but he Probably got nearly 20, twenty or something. Yeah. He got a lot of runs on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um
1: Yeah, I mean if we were to look at like if you just sorted the list by like offensive runs above average, uh I don't think you'd find that many guys in there you were like, Oh, I didn't know that guy could hit.
0: Right. Yeah, I guess I guess it's so rare. It's so rare. Yeah, and, and just scrolling through this, a lot of these are seasons that are um, that are defensive
1: outlier seasons. Right. The thing Andres I find T- interesting about Turner mm-hmm. in this free agent class is he's basically competing for top free agent dollars with two other guys who had Justin Turner's story five years ago. So Edwin Encarnacion and Jose Batista are generally considered the two best hitters in this class. And they were both waiver pickups, or I think uh, maybe they got Batista in, like, a minor trade for nothing. But basically, guys, the Blue Jays got for zero in their mid-20s who just hadn't turned into good players, and then they went to Toronto and became superstars. And so um, Turner is essentially competing against the older versions of himself uh and and I think at this point, no one questions whether Batista and Canasio can hit because we've seen them do it for so long. And it's just like, yep, this is who they are, and we don't really care what they were in their mid-20s. But Turner's mid-20s feel closer. <laughs> I think they are more recent. And I think the the idea of what he was in, with the Mets hasn't yet worn off.
0: What do you uh, – how do you ide- – I mean, this is uh, – teams would like to know the answer to this. How do you identify that player? Who is the next Justin Turner? Or are there a lot of Justin Turners, next Justin Turners?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the easy way to just identify these types of guys is look for guys who make contact and have, you know, below average power, but hit the ball hard. And so that was kind of the thing, like, Daniel Murphy always hit a bunch of line drives, and they figured out how to turn those into, like, long fly balls. Uh, Justin Turner figured out how to stop hitting them on the ground, get the ball in the air, ball would go further in the air. He got extra base hits and he turned into a really good player. So, um, I think you're basically looking for guys who make solid contact, but are using kind of like the wrong spray launch angle, maybe, or, mm-hmm. um, or, or they're an all fields approach and maybe they can become a little bit more pull heavy and turn some of those balls that land in the left center field gap into, you know, balls that go over the right field wall if they're a left handed hitter. Um, so I think, you know, like, uh, Jose Ramirez might be an interesting case, right? This is a guy that you've championed for the last couple years, just had like an, under the radar five-win season for the Indians and was one of their most valuable players in getting to the World Series, but was basically the same profile, right? Like, low power, high contact. Um, I don't think Jose Ramirez is going to turn it into Justin Turner, but it's like he's that also, kind of player. He's also
0: smaller, too. He's yeah, smaller,
1: that's the thing. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're probably um, looking for guys who are over six feet tall and have some ability to add some strength.
0: Well, so Christian Jelic is basically the, the, the dude, right?
1: Sure, although he had so many ground balls that he would have to change his swing essentially well,
0: needs to, yeah right yeah. but he has like but he makes a lot of contact and he has yeah. you would assume he's got uh, the physical tools the physical, physical strength right to, to, to turn in this season. Like he's not a free agent yet no of course the
1: trap with these guys though is that's also how you end up with James Loney and Yonder Alonso <laughs> it's like you look at these guys and be like oh man if they can just turn some of those doubles into home runs um, and then they don't then they're bad
0: right and interesting too, though that both those guys are first basemen, and that's right. like, their job. Yeah, right. If and you can it's invest you in have one. a, a yeah.
1: guy who has some other skills, and you're betting on the power coming to make him a superstar rather than the power coming to make him playable.
0: Do you know that Josh Reddick has recorded a strikeout rate less than thirteen percent each of the last two seasons? I did know that. Yes, but he's the, and yet he, you don't consider him a possible free uh, agent <laughs> bargain.
1: What do so it, he, what was it, no, he was number six. He was the last guy I cut. Okay, all right. Wait, and,
0: all right, so you, so you do regard him, but I guess you, you're a little bit skeptical that he'll ever tap into the power the, the way that some of these guys have.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's older. I think he's, what, 30 this year. So yeah. what Turner's breakout came at 28. Um, so it's a little less likely at 30. Uh, I think we also see like Reddick's physical health might be declining. His uh, defensive numbers have gone the wrong way. I think his arm has also gone the wrong way. Seems like he's a health question guy who's had a lot of injuries throughout his career. I think with with Reddick you could potentially say like, oh yeah, maybe there's some more power in there, but it might be that his body just breaks down before it can come.
0: All right. Can I say another name to you right now? Sure. Andres Torres.
1: Yeah, uh, he had a very weird career.
0: <laughs> the year, the year 2010. He had not old, all right. So he had a six, uh, he had a, a, a six point three WAR to yeah. the decimal, right? Yeah. But over six wins, he did have twenty <sighs> fielding runs. He also had a one twenty five W. He had a, a batting like twenty five percent better than the league average yeah, that year. Right.
1: It was a weird year.
0: Yeah, that was a weird year.
1: Yeah.
0: Frankly, Gutierrez, do you think that was, or was he just a was he like a crazy? He was like he was the just best a crazy defender. He was
1: the best defensive outfielder in baseball who had one season as a really good hitter
0: what's the what's the longest we can really reasonably expect, like in this case Franklin Gutierrez at the peak of his defensive game what 's the longest you can expect the guy to re, to remain on top defensively
1: well Anderson Simmons has been there for five or six years now at this point um <laughs> So I think, like, you know, Ozzie Smith, I think, uh, like, when, when Simmons was traded, I did a post comparing Simmons to Ozzie Smith. And I think I pointed out that, like, Ozzie Smith held most of his defensive value for his entire career. Like, there are these, like, preternatural, crazy defensive players who um, who kind of maintain their skills for a really long time and age pretty well. But there's also these guys who just, you know, pop up, have one great season, um, you know, get injured, their body breaks down, their knees go, and then they lose all their value.
0: Do you think that it's maybe a little bit different for an infielder, like you said, Ozzie Smith, or maybe Andreton Simmons too, and is difference for them? Maybe a position that's based off of actions and hands as opposed right. to the outfield, which is essentially – which really favors straight-line speed?
1: Yeah, probably. I think it, you could probably maintain your defensive value longer as an infielder, at least historically. I wonder, though, if uh, the marginal value of infield defense is decreasing because of shifting and positioning and um, – kind of the the new way of positioning your fielders, like I, I think I mentioned in the Neil Walker write-up, um, his range doesn't really matter as much because the guys who used to hit the b- ground balls past him are now getting shifted, and they're hitting the balls to the third baseman and who happens to be playing right field. So um, you can kind of get away with a low-rangey second baseman now, and um, I think that might make an infielder's defensive magnitude less viable.
0: Do you think, wait, so you, that's an interesting point you make because this past year, I think we saw probably more shifts than ever before. True, yeah.
1: mm-hmm. it
0: was also wasn't it wasn't it like the best year for second baseman offensively on the Yes, ever the best,
1: best ever by a large degree.
0: So it's, it's interesting that you mention it because in the same year when a second when second basemans, especially their range related defensive skills become yeah. least important, they also happen to have produced collectively the best offensive year, uh, are those things connected?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think in previous uh, generations, uh, managers would not have been willing to play Neil Walker at second base or Daniel Murphy at second base. These are guys that would have been first baseman or third baseman or corner outfielders or DHs. Um, but now teams have kind of realized, like, that arch type of the second baseman is a slap-hitting, you know, glove guy. That player is not worth as much anymore. And so we're seeing teams like, well, Neil Walker was a conversion in the minors 10 years ago. Um, I think he came up as a catcher, and then he moved to third and they moved him to second. He's, like, not had the defensive spectrum career that you normally expect, where you kind of start at a premium position and move down. He's gone the other way. Um, and Daniel Murphy, you know, was, like, a third baseman who got moved to second base. Um, so I think we've seen teams be more aggressive. Uh, what well, The White Sox traded for Brett Laurie and stuck him back at second base, even though he's mostly been a third baseman. There's a lot of these guys that teams are saying, look, you're athletic enough to play third. We're going to stick you at second and get more offense.
0: Oh, uh, Okay, back to... I'm not going to keep harassing you with this, but this is one one last one. Um, Aubrey Huff yeah. the, in
1: 2010. He had that monster season.
0: Yeah, 44% above, yeah. uh, above league average. And
1: then he went to terribleness real quick.
0: Yeah, he was worth uh, less than replacement level each of the next two yeah. seasons. Yeah. yeah. I won't bother you with that anymore. It's already been 35 minutes. Dave Cameron, I think you fulfilled your obligation.
1: That's good news. Yeah.
0: We'll see if this worked.
1: Yeah, hopefully. Yeah.
0: All right. Let's say, uh, hey, in the meantime, uh, Dave Cameron, allow me to thank you. You're welcome. Stick around for one second, but I'll say this. I'll say that has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.